everyone. Welcome to the Full Contact Cannabis Podcast. I'm Billy Hale. We're sitting in the studio today with the Old Hemp Farmer and Lee Crabtree. Both of these guys are not only the podcast sponsor, they run Tennessee Homegrown, and I thought it would be interesting to find out about the history, how they got together, trials and tribulations, and all the things you might want to know from a couple of guys who've been doing this as long as anybody in the state of Tennessee. What's happening, guys? Hey. What's up, Billy? All right. Um, gosh, the you know, not to go down, always Tennessee Homegrown, Tennessee Homegrown, but since Tennessee Homegrown is one of the older companies, and it's hard to believe a company that basically has only had products on the shelf four years is one of the older hemp companies around here. Whereas I got in in 2015, I met Lee in, was it fall of 2015 at a Tennessee Hemp Industries Association meeting? Probably. I attended the very first meeting that they had in 2015. At that time, I had cows and goats and llamas on my property and uh, going through some things, wondering if I was going to have to sell my house and move, and I wasn't ready to, to jump in, so I skipped that first year. But I did go to the—I went to the first meeting, and I attended their last meeting of that first inaugural season. I don't think, I can't remember, I know I met you there, I can't remember if I talked to you before that last meeting, or maybe it was early spring, I tried to contact uh, Colleen, the president of the TNHA at the time, and to ask some questions, I didn't really get very far with that, so I just threw up on the wet on the Facebook page. Has anybody helped me with some uh, wanting to get into hemp? And the, of course, the first one that responded was Jarbo. And, and, the, th and the thing about it was, I was looking because, and, and we're talking about the earlier days of this business. It, there was only about 40, 50 people. Nobody really knew anything. And I had made the mistake of getting involved with a couple people Two different, two different companies. One company was run by rich people who really didn't know what they were doing, and that didn't work out because when you tell rich people they don't know what they're doing, they tend to tell you to take your, your butt out of So I basically lost one company, and then the other company I was working with, the guy I was working with, realized that growing hemp was a lot of labor, and it wasn't. So here I was. I was didn't have land because I didn't have enough land that was, you know, you could grow on. And I met Lee, and the one of the things I got about Lee was one thing, he was actually worked with plants and landscaping, and he had an idea about agronomy. I mean, here was a person that had, you know, agriculture. And then also, I don't know if it was intuitive, but I realized that he had a bunch of different skills. And so he acquiesced to let me rent three acres for him to grow out there and it probably wasn't six seven weeks into our our grow in 2016 that we realized we wanted to work together and, and that was saying that was whether it's you know people will say synchronicity kismet or whatever one of the a lot of the people in the hemp industry try to do this as a one-man band or one woman band and the thing about it, it takes a lot of different skill sets. 
And Lee, um, it's always nice to work with somebody that's smarter than you are, you know, <laughs> and also has a really good work ethic. And Lee had, you know, intuitively snapped on everything we did because we were literally having to teach ourselves hemp. And here we got dumped on with genetics that weren't appropriate. Um, nobody knew anything. And Lee, I think one of the big things that we found out after we got our hearts broken twice over people who came out and told us they were going to spend all sorts of money and make us rich, who left us at the altar. And that's when, after the first year that we grew, got all traded for free-range beef and eggs, Lee said, uh-uh. And he got into what we call the research kitchen, and he started playing with our material. I was going to ask, you know, we talked about Ben Maher in our last podcast, and I was curious how you went from uh, what we just described to learning about all that stuff. Well, as Jarbo stated, I was a landscaper. I graduated MTSU with a degree in plant and soil science, had a minor in animal science. Uh, initially, I thought I'd work on a golf course or something like that. I got a job at a a, a landscaping company in, in Nashville, uh, Landscape Services Incorporated. Worked there for a few years, and then I thought I could do this all by myself. So instead of making the long drive from Murfreesboro to there, I decided to start doing it in Murfreesboro on my own. That was around 2001. Uh, and I had a, a, a good base of clients and and I had you know people came and went and over the years it, you know you just go 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 it was it's very a hard laborious job it to seems do. it seems like people always need that service but when you do it long enough everyone I've ever met usually music, musicians there they at some point they've had enough oh yeah I hate uh, shrubs <laughs> uh, if I see somebody trimming their bushes I just feel sorry for them uh, Lawns are, are stupid. <laughs> I hate grass. <laughs> but I like to grow stuff. You know, there's a certain little feeling you get when you stick a seed in some dirt and you see it emerge. It's, you, you've done something. You, you're not almost like playing gods. You, you've added something here. You, you planted a tree and you, you watch it grow. And, and there's satisfaction to that. Do you want to talk about a lot of people, when they're talking about the history of hemp here, everybody's sort of who's coming in now is that you can extract and you can do ethanol and you can do all these things. You want to talk about some of the things like when you first started processing, the hurdles that you had to, to, to clear just to be able to get a product out. Well, I toyed around with the extractions before I really got into hemp but what hemp allowed me to do was to have a large amount of readily available material to uh, systematically ruin or turn into gold so after you, you make a few mistakes I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of a, a stickler for uh, cleanliness my of course my job of course was to keep people's yards clean and I, I like clean Things. I may not be the cleanest, you know, housekeeper or, or person in the world, but things around me, if it's going to be seen by someone else, I'd like it to look good. So just just basically trying to, to clean it up is, is where it leads you down a road of 
lots of YouTube videos. There's things on the internet that you can read and, and find out, and then you'll you'll end up talking to people that know what they're talking about, and, and, and you'll pick up things, and eventually you'll get to the point where you, you, you know what you're doing. Would you want to go into the fact that in year 2015, 16, 17, that if you process something by state law, you couldn't go over 0.3% delta 9, and how at first, we had to do lipid extraction because that was the only way that we extract and it would never go hot. Uh, I mean, it wasn't my first inclination of how I wanted to do my extraction, but yeah, that I, I don't know that, that I was really thinking of it as being hot or not at the time, but it, the, the, the fact did arise and, and it became known that I guess processors could, could actually uh, have product that was hot until you dilute it down to a point where it's not. Now the lipid extractions, I, I, you know, came from trying to make can of butter. Uh, I don't like the taste of of uh, can of butter. I tried to make it better, so I tried a lot, and it, it doesn't always really get much better. But then I just started using coconut oil and. That that's a, a much better of oil to use rather than than your store-bought butter, which has water in it. Ideally, you use clarified butter, but uh, the low low water content of your or no water content of your coconut oil, and it, you can cook it, and you can make a topical out of that, and and that's where I, I started with. We were stuck at and we had a very good lawyer by the name of Curtis Harrington the second big shout out to Curtis and basically we were told that there was a speed limit up until the a bill called HB 1164 got passed and that's when they kind of got pushed that you could you know you could like he was talking about distillate and stuff it could be 80% cannabinoids as long as you were in process and that you were processed and diluted it down so in the so in the first part of this there was we did lipid extractions because one, it was legal. Two, we got a product that, when we found out, because none of us, none of us, nobody wanted to go into lipid extractions. But one of the side, whatever things we found as one thing, it was a great tasting product, and it was as effective as hell. And then, then we went, in what was that, 2017, when we started trying to play with the cryo. Yeah, I believe so. Well, then. We started trying to extract, well, you know, because we did, you know, once the extraction got opened, we tried CO2 a little bit and we did butane, but we found that the thing that we could do and was the most cost effective was ethanol. But this was the, 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 the thing about in Tennessee at that time and also at the time. There really wasn't a lot of equipment out there that was being made for large-scale extraction of hemp. I mean, you have to realize up until a couple years ago, almost all extraction was made for either recreational marijuana or medical marijuana to where if you processed a couple hundred pounds, that was a lot of cannabis. So now all of a sudden, we're growing you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So how do you extract this stuff? And I don't know if you're the first one who got thought of it because we were from we were doing ethanol extractions 
and then we were trying to winterize and I'm not sure who the germ floated but we they came up with this alright you can do both maybe both of it at the same time and that's when Lee and this what I'm saying is Lee started taking equipment that was existing adapting it to be able to start doing cryogenic ethanol and it was like one of those epiphanies because here we were running through this stuff dropping it down to 80 below centigrade and running it and the product we were getting out of it was better than anything we saw the only bad thing about it was is there was no equipment and what were you doing with all the uh, product that you were creating where was it going well this is <laughs> first we had <clears throat> internet and we were doing there and then finally in December 2016 we found a very crazy nice lady by the name of Chris Hauser McCarthy who owned a hardware store and she gave us space in between citronella cam candles and I think campfire fuel or, and she put it in there and it sold. What town was that in? Jolton, Tennessee. Jolton. So yeah our big claim to fame was was a hardware store. Are you still in the store? Oh God yes she's our queen mother and is one of the few people that anytime she makes an order, we hand deliver. Because, you know, not to get all for a Clint. I mean, people don't realize, you know, now it's like this green rush. But in 2015, 2000, <clears throat> 2015, 2016, it was very hard to find people who would sell your product. Well, at that time, people are questioning. I remember thinking, is it legal? Can I buy this? I went to CVS one time, and they looked at me when I asked them if they had any product like that. They looked at me like I was asking for something illegal, you know. Lee, like, when did you have your eureka moment with cryogenic? Well, I started trying to, to do the extraction in a stand-up freezer with a, a beverage holder that has a little spout at the bottom you know that you can do that with uh, it wasn't really cold enough in there and the freezer wasn't enough room to do a lot of stuff I was trying to keep the ethanol cold try to keep it all as, as cold as I could it, it all just came from just diving in on the internet all that I could and looking up uh, ways of extracting things and then I, I don't remember where I came across something with uh, dry ice and, and that's when I I thought about uh, packing that freezer full of dry ice uh, that didn't work so good so then it, it was uh, Jarbo had said well why don't we just put it inside the material and that worked it needed more tweaks as well uh, and then I just kind of scaled it up from there larger buckets uh, more dry ice and and you know you're, you're wasting a lot of stuff that way we had no centrifuge you had to let it drip so you know you get two grades of your material out of that you get your A grade and your B grade the B grade's green it's going to need more winters, winterization filtering uh, the A grade is what I used for our, our tinctures so it was about that time that I'd, a company I'd done consultation work out in Colorado called me up and they said, you guys want a Rotovap? And it was just like, Shh. Yeah, the, the Rotovap is what uh, really made it happen because at that time I was using 
these water distillers to recover my solvent. Uh, I had about six or seven of them lined up, and, and, and it worked. Nothing blew up. Uh, you got to watch out where you buy those because some of them are very cheaply made, and, and a couple of them did go into the garbage. But overall, it, it, it worked really well, but you couldn't get it down to a point you know, and actually get it out of that vessel. So I would just recover as much ethanol as I could. It's still pourable. Let it cool a little bit. Maybe add a little more ethanol to get it out of there. And then I would do some filtration. Then put it in the rotovap, and, and that way I could get it actually down, almost fully decarbed. You know, we're just using water, distilled water in the water bath. So the, the temperature wouldn't quite get as as high as you want, and it would take a lot longer. So you know, I'd be work, we'd be watching this thing almost all day long, just to get half a what? What would I get? Maybe 250 grams, or sometimes I might get a half a kilo out in that little roto. I had to adapt that and put different size of flask on it that were larger so that I could fit more in there and eventually I got to it, to where I could to get it down to the point where I wanted it it was clean it was it was good and I could dilute it into our MCT and use it in our tinctures and then to to harken back to the podcast previously where I was talking about why are things $80 versus $30 I guess this process would uh, cause your your price to be what it would be right um Yes, I mean the time you spend on it is is worth something. Uh, the equipment costs weren't all that high at the time, and and you know of course we just go with what market value we could get out of it, and kept our costs as low as possible. And and then uh, once Benmar came around, I was able to do larger amounts faster. Now, okay, but at what point did you realize? that you could do this and do it real well? Uh, well, you kept telling me I could, and I, I, I don't know, I didn't really believe you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, when uh, I, I still don't think that I'm the best extractor in the world. I, I know a lot of stuff. I know kind of what's going on. I wouldn't take anything down to isolate, but uh, you know, when things started selling, when people started coming back and saying, this has helped me, that's when I felt like I had done a good job. Well, this is the thing, Matt. If we're grading on a curve, you're one of the best around. Right. It's a big curve. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> not a whole lot of us around, I don't think. But do you think you have an in that you, part of this is almost having an intuitive feel for the material in the process? Uh, somewhat. I mean, it, you just really need to know what you're after, what your what your target. All right. Then the question out. is, why are there so many people doing this, and their product is total crap? Well, I mean, if you start looking into your product, you're actually. I'm very critical of myself, and if it doesn't taste good, if, or you know. If it tastes like crap or if it's green, then I'm not going to give that to anybody. But I would have had a product a lot faster if I wasn't so critical on myself. You can go out and you can make 
a really crappy crude of 50% or something, it's probably green. Now, you're going to give that to people. They're not going to like the taste of it, but they will probably like the results that they get from using that. Uh, and you're probably not going to change. But I'm constantly trying to make things better, and so we just change. Speaking of which, being I keep track of stuff, how much? How many damn lab reports or tests no, so gosh. did you do last year? I really don't even have a number of that. It is ungodly number. Well, just for our company it, itself, we, you know, at least one or two a month. Uh, that's on a slow month. Of I'd say at least the maximum, you know, seven or eight a month. Uh, the truth is we just did so many lab tests that the company we did called me up one day and says, you know, you guys, we're going to start cutting your price on your test because you're doing so much. So we, we ended up getting a discount because we're doing so many tests. Okay, and okay, so here you are, you're doing 35, 40, I bet it's more like 50, 60 tests a year, right? Yeah, at least. At least? Yeah. Why? Well, how else would I know if anything's any good? I gotta, you gotta look at the numbers, mainly because you have to formulate, and if you've got, if you have a small batch that you made, you need to know what's in that batch. You have to, have to do a lab test. The larger the batches, if you can homogenize a, a big 10-liter beaker of crude or, or distillate and, and get you a sample, then, then that sample will last you a little while, but you still have to then formulate it and double-check your, your formulation so you get another lab test done on that. Uh, you, you, I don't want to put anything out there that's not what's on the label if it's not within so how many percent. sorry so how many of these lab reports that we're paying for are actually for product or how much it is because Lee Crabtree wants to know well um, a lot of them just because I want to know what I did <laughs> whether I you know as a marketing guy I've got to ask are you promoting this on the site? Is this something that says our processing, our process, and, and then you discuss every just to let people know how hard you're working to give them a good product? Uh, no, I, I don't toot my horn at all. I don't let people know how hard it is to do it. I make things look easy, and that's not always good for the people that see me do it. Well, how that's one of the things that would going into that it seems like is accelerated and stuff is the for a company any company not just Tennessee homegrown how the 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 importance of research and development I mean how how much well all right let's put it this way what minor success that Tennessee homegrown has how much do you think it has to do with the continual research and development it's got everything to do with it. I mean, technically, if you're going to have a product, you need to have, it's going to be in an R&D state at some point to where you're testing it. But for whatever reason, I don't, I think a lot of people skip that step. They make their product, 
boom, they slap a label on it and, and stick it on the shelf. So one of the things that's missing on the, a lot of the people that since you're a processing guru, one of the things that you, that you have to tell people if they are starting a processing facility is the fact that it's not going to, you're never going to be there. I mean, let's face it. Do you ever think you'll be happy? Mm, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's good. Though. Good right, for the people right. that, that buy the product. So here it is. Company now is going on, what, four or five years old, right? It's scary time in the cannabis business. It doesn't matter if it's rec, med, or high CBD. So what are you thinking? As in... Like as in just the industry in general. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure what to think. It, it's it's pretty crazy out there right now. Uh, you basically wake up in the morning and see what happened yesterday. Or see what's happening today and see what's different. What they're going to let you do, what you can't do. Right. Uh, and hope for the best. I mean, we've been in it long enough now I don't I don't think CBD is going to go away I, I deep within me I really feel that uh, this should be cheaper on the end product uh, but it, it's so hard to get it uh, how do you how do you make that transition I mean the raw product right now is dropping the end of retail price of things has not really dropped much. Now, I, I was talking about that this morning. You know, if you're talking about a high MG tincture, you're looking at 85 bucks for a bottle, mm -hmm. right? 85 to 100. And then my question is, is how does Joe Public justify spending that if they don't know exactly the difference between that and a $30 bottle? Woman, well, I how do you justify spending on that whether you know it or not, can you even afford to do that every month? Right. You know, what benefits are you going to get? Which it, I think the product has to tell us that on the on the get-go is this is what this product right, can yeah, do. Yeah. But with but that, you, the prices ahead. are coming down on uh, everything out there. And do you think you will see a, a drop in, in what tinctures and uh, gummies and all these other things are costing right now? Uh, there's got to be some... Something's got to give sooner or later. Uh, you know, like, as Jarbo will tell you, if you're gonna, if you're going to sell retail, if you're going to have a brand, you have to not only grow it, get it processed, get it formulated, get it into a bottle, right. labeled. Now you have to market all that. Shipping, handling, marketing. Yes. Right? And, and that also, can get expensive. Also, the other thing that hasn't really crept too much into our industry is because, once again, high CBD has transitioned from medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. And for the longest, the thing that reigned supreme was the milligram. How many milligrams is it? What is the percentage and whatever? So the thing about it is the market is going to evolve. This is my personal opinion is that you'll have mass-produced products that that are going to get very affordable. They're going to be, you know, 
done industrial. There's not someone like Lee Crabtree won't play even play into the. It'll be you have a standard operating procedure and you're going to get product. What I believe though, there's enough people that CBD has made a profound effect on their life, and they're the same people who will go out of their way to buy organic kale or any other product that they know is high quality and has been that the where they all right, long story they know the people who made it they know how the people made it and they're willing to pay for that and right now this industry is we're going in here where it's still you know it's like like the thing it's is apparent when someone says well that's like $250 for a kilo of crude now a kilo crude when you're in that crude world can be something that is basically doesn't even pour at room temperature or it can be something that's cleaned up and it's like, oh my, that looks nice. But it's all called crude. And so part of that has to do with is on the pricing and everything is it just hasn't been around long enough for it to settle into the different little niches. And when I came to you, that was exactly what I wanted to do was take a, a farm like yours and tell the story so that people out there that want to buy a product but want to feel like they know who's making it, how it's being made, the purity, what it's doing for them, why it costs what it costs, and they want to support the people that are out there doing it, right? As right. opposed to a giant industry right. or a giant company that's uh, taking over rainforests and uh, burning down our, our earth while they're at it. Right. You know, we have guys like you out there. so. There is a story, I think, to every one of these companies, and the trick is to find the one that you identify with or want to stand behind. There's so many stories in hip right now. It's not even <laughs> funny, um, you know, to go into that. But you know, that's so. That's where we are. And Tennessee Homegrown has has been around long enough that it's uh, had started out really hard, had really good success. Now we're like all the other companies here. Um, sales are all starting to level out and so the people that had good management and that's the other thing we haven't gone into and we kind of Lee kind of did is that um, a big bunch of this is companies that have good enough management made enough decisions that they can hang in long enough to be able to figure out a way to carve out their niche both marketing wise and also as far as their profit model because right now, you have a lot of people out there that are in this business, and if you ask them actually how much their product cost, probably couldn't tell you. Which, if you're in business and you can't, you don't know your cost, it's a probably uh, a pretty scary environment. Right. So I don't know. So the, you know. So there we are, a baby company that's kind of grown into, I guess, a teenager, and now we're wondering, basically, when we grow up what this is all going to be. So I know you're in stores all over Tennessee. I know that state laws limit how far a company like yours can reach out and sell. But do you have, it? are you are you waiting to see what the industry is going to unfold into? Do you have plans right now for moving forward? Yeah, more like wait and see where this ends up. There's just so many things changing and things happening right, right now that uh, it's hard to keep up sometimes but I don't plan on going anywhere are you, are you putting a crop in this year we're gonna put a small crop in probably even less than we grew last year I'm 
uh, really sure that there's still going to be material from last year waiting around by the time we're harvesting this year. Uh, we're doing some uh, some cold butane extractions. We're going to try little live resin runs. Uh, more for kind of the R&D thing, uh, just enough to, to keep us going as is, uh, and nothing more. I'm not looking to sell kilos of distillate and kilos of crude. That's a, that's a race to the bottom right now. Uh, what you, people didn't, I don't think, really understood was that a kilo of crude, whether it be 50% or 80%, uh, there is a difference in those, and they should cost, the cost should reflect the quality of that. But that one kilo, you got to meet it in the middle. You got a 600 or 60% crude, and you've got 600 grams of CBD is in that crude. And if you're making topicals for Kroger or, or Dollar General, you know, what, what strength are you claiming on it, number one? Uh, say it's a hundred, two hundred milligram, that six hundred grams is gonna go a long way. You don't need to process two thousand pounds a day to feed Kroger or Walgreens or any of them. The thing about it right now, I, I think when I'd like to think of Tennessee homegrown has good management. And right now to make any sort of weighted decision, there's not enough information out there to do this. So just like what Lee said, what we're gonna do is we, we have our little rainy day fund that we banked, and what we're gonna do is try to, to be able to nimble enough. That is, scary thing, you know, about being a small company is that you can get eaten up and you can get forced out. The flip side to that though is, and this is where a lot of large companies are hurting. They have made decisions, putting in huge amounts of money into equipment. And now, even if there is a radical change in the market, they're stuck. I mean, if you spend a million and a half dollars on equipment, that equipment is, you're going to have to try to find a way to pay off. What we're going to try to do this year is basically hold back long enough to see through intuition, experience, where we can get an idea where the market's going to go and then adapt. But that right now, no, there's not any major decisions being made. Well, we the good news the good news for you listening to the podcast is that you'll get to ride along with that experience with, with the old hemp farmer. And uh, you'll get to uh, see what we see from the studio here and uh, the farms and the expos all over the, the state and outside the state. Lee, were you about to say something? I don't think so. I kind of lost where I was there oh, for a minute. Sorry, man. <laughs> sorry. Well, I, it, unless you want to kind of switch topics. I don't right now, but what I do want to do is tell everyone how to visit your site, look at your products, and maybe find you. I know you're going to be at the uh, National Hip Expo in Louisville, Kentucky, February 29th, March 1st. Lee can be found at a farm near you. <laughs> Lee, are you doing anything? You going to any events or anything in the future? Uh, I just go when I can. There's a hemp marketplace uh, this month. Was it near the end of the month? It's on the 29th. 29th, yeah. 
down there at the smokehouse again. I'll be there. In Nashville, Tennessee. Is that, my wife, is that Stacy. A Megan event? That's yeah, a Megan, Megan event. Scruggs event. Yeah. yeah. Having a little, what does he call it, tokes and strokes going on there. I, I want to say something to Megan if you're listening, and I think you might be. Um, you walked by and tried to hand me a box full of delicious things, which I said no to because I've been off the sugar. But you handed one to my daughter, and when we got home, she opened it up, and I was like, look at these awesome treats that you made. <laughs> they were. I took a picture of it. I brought my wife in and made her look at them, and then they ate them. But uh, I wanted to say, even though I declined the sugary offer, that I sure appreciated that you went that far and handed those things out. They were awesome. I just want to make sure you know that. So to find your website, TennesseeTNHomegrown.com, and you can shop, look at all the things they have to offer, and you do have more than a few things out there for everyone to check out, and you can learn a little bit about the farm and see the guys. And correct. If my marketing skills are on point, I will uh, I will inject this podcast into your website, so now people can go in and learn all about your your cool. farm uh, audibly. Awesome. All right. Well, till next time, Billy. All right. As I always say, keep one eye on the weather, one eye on the market. I say simmer down now. All right, y'all. <laughs> Bye. Oh wait, bonus material right here, Lee. I want to tell you something. Let's see how far we can go with this. So I'm I'm from uh, Sherman, Texas, and I was raised as a small child on an exotic animal ranch. Mm-hmm. So we had over 36 llamas at one time. Mm-hmm. My mom actually invented the haircut where the llama's hair is long in the front but shaved in the middle. Right. She that's her her invention in the 70s. So I think we started buying around 72 when llamas first started coming in the country. What kind of goats did you raise? Uh, they were just mixed. Mixed goat, just goat, goat. No yeah. miniature goats or anything. I I did end up with a couple of miniature little meaner and shit goats that I promptly sold as soon as I could. Uh, I didn't have any type of breeding situation. I just had twelve acres and I needed something to eat them. Yeah. At the time, I was married for the like, the first year that I lived in my house. Uh, before we got a divorce, my ex mother in law had gifted me some goats and, and cattle. Uh, had a bunch of female cattle and my neighbor's bull liked to jump the fence, yep. which, and he did. And, and so I, I multiplied just practically by osmosis. So I've liked the name Billy my whole life. In fact, we named a bull named Billy and he was as big as a, a Chevy truck. And his main occupation was jumping the barbed wire fence and impregnating everything in the you know <laughs> right. as far as he could go and all the way to we raised buffalo and so uh thanks to him we had herflo <laughs> and uh he did <coughs> maybe this is graphic but he jumped the barbed wire fence and he uh demanded himself Ooh. down to half didn't stop him he kept on jumping fences after there yeah that's the way this one was he was a big charlet bull a good i i want to say he was probably 1800 2,000 pound bull long as you can imagine and he would jump that four foot fence with a barbed wire over it and his balls came so close to those barbs that it made me nervous to watch him do it uh, I just it wasn't fun to watch but he made it every time I don't think he ever snagged himself but I, I used to I also had llamas there too they were there to, to protect the goats in which they I got to witness them doing that a, a couple of times so it was really neat did you ever have any rogue llama, male llamas? 
Uh, no, these were just two females. They were yeah. a good team, and they would go shoulder to shoulder and, and stomp and, and swing their head at whatever dog or coyote that, that, that intruded into the pasture. We had a herfalo named Herford, and uh, he grew, he was huge. And he would, uh, I could pull, I had drove a 78 Scout 2, and I could pull it up next to him, and he would get his head up against the bumper, and I would start nudging him. You know, I'm 16. This is a good idea. Yeah. And uh, he would put his head against the bumper, and he would hold it, and then I would slowly accelerate. This sounds completely fabricated, but it is true. My brother can uh, back me up on this. And he would hold my truck while I would spin the rear tires. <laughs> so I was in college, and uh, I came home one night, and we were having steak. And uh, I said, uh, this is some good steak. And my dad said, it should be good. You bottle fed it. it this is Herford, <laughs> or Burford. Oh, no. And so it turns out he said it was sunny, and it was beautiful outside. And he said, I heard thunder. And I thought, how could it be thunder, and there's not a cloud in the sky? So we lived up on top of a hill. And he said he went out back, and he said we had a full above-ground fuel tank, you know, bigger than this room with a gas pump on the end. He said that, that buffalo got that fuel tank rocking till he got it tipped over, and he said he rolled it all the way down our hill into our creek. Oh, my God. And he said, and I shot him, and now we're eating. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't eat steak for like 24 hours after that. <laughs> 24 hours, right? Put a toe on me. <laughs> all right, well, this is the Ben Bonus Track. To the full contact cannabis. This was extra contact. I'm Billy Hale. We're here with the old hemp farmer and Lee Crabtree. And uh, we thank you all for listening. And be sure and hit uh, like and then also hit subscribe. And anything that you can, button that you can touch near what you're listening to here, go ahead and click it. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you all later.